Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alexander Mershak. Today I'm speaking with favored guest, Cody Moser. Cody is an evolutionary anthropologist and graduate student at the University of California Merced's Department of Cognitive and Information Sciences. This is a special show because not only was Cody our first guest, but so much has changed since our first show seven months ago in February of 2020 that the gap between where we started and where we are seven months later feels like it could have been decades. The conversation as such today will cover a serious amount of ground in trying to bring everything up to speed and speak on not only where we are, but where we might be going. I also took the opportunity to announce a shift in the direction of the show away from polarization and towards a more philosophically minded style of inquiry. Uh, You'll be hearing more on that later. Topics we cover are how much the world has changed since coronavirus, Peter Churchin's 2020 prediction, inter-elite competition, ideological herd immunity, are we in a civil war, reorganizing society after the Great Reset, the return to localism, micro-credentialing and the future of online education, the end of universities as the gatekeepers of knowledge, will this be the end of cities as well, elite overproduction, declining birth rates in the West, anthropology as a science, the IDW, and more. Lastly, if you appreciate the work I'm doing and you want conversations like these to continue, we have set up a Patreon for the show. So if the show is providing value to you, if you have the adequate means, and if you find yourself so inclined, then I appreciate anything you can give to make the show more sustainable as a long-term endeavor. So now, without further ado, I'll give you Cody Moser. So, Cody, uh, let's just get started here. Um, welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today, I'm speaking with Cody Moser. Uh, this is the uh, Littlefoot episode uh, 2.0. So, Cody, you are uh, you are both my first guest, and now you are my uh, first repeat guest as well. So, this is becoming quite the uh, the Cody Moser uh, Stan podcast, <laughs> and uh, we're we're very happy to have you as a repeat guest and. Uh, I'm just uh, really excited to get into this conversation and see what we get into today. Yeah, I'm excited too. I mean, what was it, seven months and a lot has changed since then. Basically, the entire world. Basically, everything that you thought about life and politics or anything else, I don't know why I just put that react in there, um, is, uh, is, is totally different from where we were seven months ago. It's actually pretty amazing. So we recorded our first episode together uh, for this podcast back, uh, I believe in late January, I think it was mm-hmm. January 26th of, uh, <clears throat> this year of 2020. And, uh, shortly after that, within like the next month or so, or two months, basically the whole pandemic happened. Um, you know, up until that point, there was a lot of shakiness going on with 2020 already. We knew about the coronavirus, but it was mostly still contained to the Chinese mainland. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there were some other issues like the whole World War Three, Iran, uh, you know, debacle and so forth. But we, we really had no idea back in, in February uh, where things were headed. And so I feel like almost everything we talked about during that conversation uh, is almost irrelevant now or at least needs mm-hmm. some like s- severe updates. Yeah. How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm trying to think how much my ideas about the world have changed. I mean. What, one big thing that kind of scared me, and this was kind of big on Twitter for a while, was the whole Peter Turchin thing. 
um, where, you know, back in like 2012, he said, I think 2020 is going to be a pretty crazy year, guys. And, you know, everyone's like, well, you can say whatever you want, but we'll we'll see it when it happens. Well, it happened. We're here now. Um, it's like right on the spot. You know, you never hear about people making these predictions in social sciences that just come true magically like that. It's it's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, well, so I, I want to get into that. Um, obviously, like when I messaged you to do this episode, I mentioned the Peter Turchin thing just because you had actually brought that up almost in passing mm-hmm. on our first episode. Uh, you, we had briefly mentioned, you know, the study of uh, cleodynamics is sort of trying to use the scientific method to, a, as a way to, um, think about history mm-hmm. and to analyze history in a mathematical, um, sense. And, uh, before, before I, I jump into that real quick, do you want to just give the audience a, a brief rundown of what we're talking about, what this 2020 prediction was and, um, a little bit about Peter Turchin, who made it? Yeah, sure. Um, so Peter Turchin is a uh, social scientist. I believe he was at the University of Connecticut for a long time. Um, he didn't always do social sciences. Um, he was primarily a population ecologist, so, um, you know, using all different kinds of equations and models to predict how different animal populations will change due to external pressures or due to changes um, in their mating rates or predation rates things like that. Um, He really excelled at that. Um, In a sense, his career in doing that, he kind of slayed all his enemies in a sense, figured out what major problems he wanted to figure out. And he said, you know, um, how about we apply some of these population principles um, to human populations? Um, So in a sense, he's taken uh, demography and turned it into a kind of applied social science. And what I mean by that is he's not just looking at things like um, birth rates and death rates in the population, but he's taking different um, economic factors and taking those into consideration. Um, one of the big things that he talks about is this concept that sociologist Jack Goldstone, who studies revolutions, came up with um, called intra-elite competition, or um, as it's kind of expounded by them, it's called structural demographic theory, uh, because intra-elite competition is something a little bit older made by uh, Vilfredo Perito. Um, who originally came up with the concept. And we can kind of talk about that because he he was kind of an interesting character. Um, And Turchin, about the year 2012, um, he he had been talking about uh, creating a new science that he called cleodynamics. Clio or Clio is the, I think, Egyptian god of knowledge, um, goddess. Um, And he said, how about uh, we start collecting a bunch of different historical variables and trying to predict why different things in history happened. You know, why is it that um, Egypt kept on collapsing so many times and then Europe didn't? Or why is it that, you know, certain Chinese dynasties fizzled out and and what kind of cycles do these happen in? One thing that he started doing was he said, how about if we start taking these concepts and applying them to the future? And he started saying, we can start forecasting based on some of the predictions I've made in cloud dynamics. Um, A lot of people thought he was pretty crazy. In 2012, he came up with this blog post saying, um, based on my models, uh, 2020, and he specifically used the term, it's kind of ambiguous, but it was the years around 2020 um, are going to be pretty bad. Um, Like I said, you know, people kind of say, okay, interesting blog post, we'll see. Um, You know, I don't think he could have predicted a pandemic, but you know, just seeing the way that society is kind of breaking apart right now, it seems as it appears, 
Um, kind of an interesting observation for him to accurately make. Yeah, so um, this goes at least as far back as at 2010, I believe. So about mm. a decade on. And um, <clears throat> he pinpointed the year 2020. Actually, rather, rather exactly. Obviously, it could have gone you know, one way or the other on either side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, what were some of the, um, key, uh, I guess, factors that, uh, you know, went into making that prediction where he could, because there, uh, what he basically did is he was able to, to graph the social phenomenon in a series of waves, right? Mm-hmm. And these waves go by decade, but they are also larger waves that coincide with it. Mm-hmm. And as as far as I understand it from uh, when I last reviewed this paper, uh, he's basically saying that the reason 2020 was predicted to be such a tumultuous year and, you know, it's not just the pandemic. Obviously, that was totally out of left field. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the social unrest, the political polarization, the upheaval, um, all of that had to do, at least from his model, with the fact that these two waves would actually be peaking at the same time around that period. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, Turchin kind of uses this concept called secular cycles um, to describe historical dynamics. Um, Within secular cycles, I believe there's like 150-year trends. And then within that, there's 30-year trends. And what the 30-year trends are, they're basically generational cycles. So the idea being that, say, a really bad ideology or discord in general arises in a population. Um, The generation that goes through that um, is not going to want to enjoy that very much afterwards, um, or the generation that comes up through that isn't going to want to keep going through that. And so pretty much the problem gets fixed. um, And and these are the terms that Turchin uses to describe them. There's kind of a herd immunity built up in the population um, against some of this discord or against some of these bad ideas um, that cause everything bad to happen. Well, then the next generation comes along. Um, They didn't have that exposure. Technically, they don't have that immunity. Um, Then you get this. And so he predicted um, pretty much based on the wave of crime that was in America in like the 1970s, um, early 1980s, and said, you know, if we keep on tracking this forward, it seems like uh, the way that violence is peaking in America, um, he looked at, you know, school shootings in particular is peaking. he said, it looks like if this model keeps continuing um, based on models and how everything went back in the 70s and 80s, um, 2020 is going to be the peak. And so you think we're at that peak? I mean, I I think we're around the peak, definitely. Um, I, I wrote a review. Well, maybe we're on the way up still, which is scary. That is the scary thing. And some of his models, you know, he has like different trajectory, you know, like a hurricane trajectory where it could go anywhere. And someone was like, oh, you know, we could figure our way out of this, although I think it's a little too late for that. Uh, but then there's some where it's like, yeah, maybe we just sink all the way. Um, right. You know, you don't want that to happen. But So that actually ties a little bit into, I guess, uh, what I said at the beginning of this conversation about sort of changing the direction of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, I thought that I was going to be more focused on political polarization or trying to decrease polarization. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I've inclined to move the show into more of a philosophical direction in general mm-hmm. and to focus 
more hardcore on you know theories of politics, theories of society, human nature, etc. Um, just because uh, I think I, 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 I'm not sure one that um, focusing on decreasing polarization is really something that I need to be doing. There are other shows that are already doing that quite well um, mm. and that are only dedicated to that and they're quite popular. Um, and then the other thing too was just that I feel like we're at a, at a point where I'm not sure that focusing on uh, trying to slow the phenomenon of polarization is actually the right strategy. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's the wrong strategy. Now I'm not saying in this that I'm becoming some sort of like accelerationist where I'm trying to just make things worse uh, yeah. to sort of, you know, I guess bring about, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the eschaton or something faster. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I am, I, I am convinced that trying to move forward and, and be more being more future focused on putting out new theories and new ideas mm-hmm. uh, rather than uh, sort of like standing athwart history, you know, yelling stop or something <laughs> is uh, is the better way to go. And so I'm actually moving away from the polarization focus, although, of course, that's something I'm still concerned about in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about the state of u.s polarization um obviously this is a a component in the uh current social unrest that we're having it's going to continue to be i I actually have stated publicly and i'll continue to say that i think we're already in some sort of uh soft civil war that will probably continue uh what a lot of people don't realize right now is that sort of the the next generation of warfare or uh fourth generation warfare it's all very non-kinetic or it's very Mm -hmm. it's very decentralized it's not necessarily state actors against state actors. Um, and I would qualify where we're at in terms of the level of, um, of just general, you know, anarchy and, uh, you know, inter-civilian violence uh, and general lack of rule of law. Mm-hmm. I would say that we're basically in some kind of civil war right now. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'd say we are certainly in the middle of a process that sometimes looks like a civil war sometimes i think looks like this um well so so here's here's what i think so i'm very scared right now because i think that no matter what happens in this election and i'm not the only person saying this lots of other prominent people are saying this mm -hmm. but i'm also a prominent person um (laughs) uh are saying that no matter what happens with this election, it's going to be disputed. Yep. And I made a comment, I made a tweet earlier today that was like, yeah, you know, I'd make a bet on who's going to win the election right now, but I'm actually not sure when I'd be able to cash out my money. Like yeah. I'm, I'm literally, I'm almost a hundred percent certain at this point that the, uh, whatever the election gets called on, it's not going to be over the day after the election. And so, yeah. Who knows how long that's going to drag out. And I feel like the civil unrest is only going to intensify over the next three months. Um, so I'm not here to like just just give a, a dark, gloomy forecast. I'm not trying to blackpill you, but um, <laughs> that's that's kind of where I'm at with things. Um, I I don't know. Um, do you do you see things? uh calming down anytime soon um you know i think a big thing is uh 
getting people back to work. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to put any kind of, oh, it must be this that caused all the rides, because obviously it's a large number of factors, including the proximate reason, which, you know, was the George Floyd death. But it, it seems like a lot of people, a lot of young people had a lot of time on their hands um, to get out in the street and start burning things down. Um, I think that the violence would be a lot lower if people were at work, if we could have figured out a way to get through this, you know, pandemic without keeping everyone at home. And then second, you know, not giving them any money. Um, you know, that I, man, I don't know how that failed. I think about that almost every day. Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how to feel about the election because I think you're right. Um, Trump's already said, you know, how he's going to feel about it. And we already know what happens when, you know, Trump gets elected is it gets disputed, you know, for the next four years, um, as we have just saw, you know, with the impeachment and then um, people saying, oh, you know, the post office is going to be shutting down so that people can't mail in their ballots and all this other stuff. But I, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to calm down. I think the only thing that would calm it down is like if the vaccine came out tomorrow and everyone could just, OK, now I can go make some money. Um yeah, well, here's something that might calm it down. It might calm down if this um, ideological immune system that uh, Turchin was pointing out and that you were talking about, mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if that starts getting kicked in a lot faster with regard to the public's understanding of, um, of the news media. Because I, I, I do think we are actually reaching a certain turning point where a large, like a very large, significant portion of the public is realizing that the news media has a has a profit incentive mm -hmm. to create this kind of discord and to create this um, polarization and to exacerbate it. Um, and that ultimately the news is just bad for them and it's creating more problems than it's solving. And the level of disinformation that you're exposed to if you're consuming a lot of news is just so high mm -hmm. um, that uh, I, I feel like maybe one of the hopeful things that's happening is a lot of people now that they're spending more time at home and with their families are starting to turn away from that politics. And they are kind of realizing that like, oh, if I spend all day on social media or like getting involved in like random political discussions, I'm actually just creating a lot of uh, anger in myself and a lot of like mm. discord with the people around me and not really solving any problems, you know? Yeah. I mean, I do think, I do think that the media has been um, pretty disastrous throughout this whole thing. Um, but I also do think that some of the ways that we've self-organized our information has been pretty bad, too. I mean, we're at a point where, you know, people are at such a distrust to the media. And, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into too much about, you know, the public's view of epidemiology as a whole. But it's at a point where, you know, if Dr. Fauci says one thing, there's definitely a sector of America that's going to do the opposite because they believe oh man this guy's totally lying to us you know bill bill gates is going to try and get us to you know put this vaccine in our arms and poison my kids and stuff like that and you know I, and i'm not trying to exaggerate these positions i mean i run into it all the time where i live um a lot of people you know who are just so distrustful of almost any information coming out that they've started making up their own information i mean the QAnon stuff um is pretty prevalent um, I have a lot. I have a lot of thoughts about the QAnon phenomenon, but I'm gonna leave it aside for now because it's it's a little wacky. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess uh, as you were saying that, I was kind of thinking that there might be two angles that would probably be interesting. 
for mm. you as an anthropologist. Um, one of the things that's happening right now is that there's kind of two things looming over everybody's head. One is there's the the election, right, which I think a lot of people have mostly negative feelings about. I mean, even yeah. even if you are uh, pro-Trump and you think Trump is going to win or you're pro-Biden and you think that Biden is going to win, I feel like even then, um, even if you have a very well-settled partisan position, I don't feel like anyone actually has a lot of positive feelings about what's going to happen over the next few months as we approach the election and what's going to happen afterwards, um, mm-hmm. even if they think their side is geared up to win it. So, uh, And on the other hand, there is a lot of optimism that I'm seeing, at least sort of mixed in with the despair, <laughs> which is that um, what everyone's kind of termed the Great Reset, uh, th- now this term has kind of come up very, uh, very spontaneously in a lot of places, and I'm seeing a lot of very prominent people using it. So who knows? Maybe it was manufactured by the CIA. I have no idea. <laughs> but what they're saying, what they're calling this reorganization of society that you talked about, they're calling this the Great Reset. And I would mm-hmm. say, I would think that as an anthropologist, you would actually be super interested right now in the possibilities that are open for reorganizing how we work, how we live. And really the way that our our communities are structured, Um, because I don't think there has ever been a time, at least in recent human history, where such a large portion of people have had the opportunity to make some kind of transition. Mm -hmm. And it's not only been economically feasible, but also technologically viable. Um, What do you see coming out of this and how do you imagine ways that society might reorganize? You know, one thing that I kind of thought was really exciting was kind of this almost pushback to localism. You know, you had people in San Francisco moving back to their hometowns or, uh, you know, taking the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma up on their offer to get paid to live in their city for a year. Um, wait, wait, you know, I can get paid to move to Tulsa? You can get paid to move to Tulsa. Um, right now? Well, right now, this instant. Uh, Holy shit. The city shit. of Tulsa is paying people to no. move out there. Just to let everybody know, I graduated back in May. I'm still in Michigan right now from Michigan State, but I'm literally just looking at a map of the United States right now and trying to decide where I would like to go Um, because I'm working remotely. So I have the option, in theory, to move wherever. Um, And I'm trying to narrow down the cities right now. Um, So that's interesting for me to know that Tulsa is paying people to move there. Yeah, they, they, uh, you know, they pay. They pay. I'm not sure if I'm here game for tulsa but sure. sorry not to insult but, any yeah. tulsa people i mean they'll, they'll give you an office space i mean they i mean they're really trying to incentivize people Wait, really to holy shit. yeah <laughs> i might be i might have to take this up just i mean it's, it's genius on their part and, and, for the and, financial incentives uh, well i mean the, the coronavirus was like perfect timing for them because it's mm-hmm. like you know all of a sudden it's people from facebook like oh man i don't want to live in san francisco if i can't you know go out get coffee with my friends anymore (laughs) i feel like everybody that i think is cool is moving to austin you know like i have a personal reason not to move to austin so i was i don't have sweat glands i was born without sweat glands Mm -hmm. and so it being like 100 degrees all the time in austin is not really jiving with me that well that'd be terrible but everyone stays inside all day anyway uh from what i hear they're basically like yeah austin during the summer is like mars you just don't go outside um and I'm like, well, I mean, I could do that. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's a it's a nice city. I lived in a uh, college station about 
an hour and a half from them for a while, and I would go out there every once in a while. Um, but, you know, the problem, of course, with everyone moving there is that then they'll just ruin it like they ruined it other places. California. <laughs> yeah. Oh! All the time. Like, oh, yeah, it's like it's like you get the uh, California NIMBYs and then you get the uh, Texas NIMBYs, you know, kind of clashing with each other. And I don't want to see what that's going to look like, but <laughs> right. Yeah, but but you know, yeah, people moving back home. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends who now they're like, oh man, you know, I've always kind of wanted to live on a farm. Uh, yes, yeah. I can start doing that now. Homesteading, um, let's go. Yeah, yeah, and and um. You know, I think I want to say in the last podcast, we talked a little bit about like Wendell Berry. Um, he, he had a piece a while back. Wendell Berry is this American poet who always talks about localism, um, kind of, you know, the environment in the United States of America, Re- really just an all around amazing American poet. Um, and he, he talked about, you know, we don't need smart people who they go to college and then they never come back home. We need smart people who go to college, then come back home and make home better. Um and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we are going to start seeing the reinvigoration of areas of the Midwest due to this. I mean, I know like Des Moines has been pretty popular for people to move to from uh, even New York City and San Francisco. Um, yeah, I mean, what I'm really interested to see, I, I just got done doing a, um, a couple of internships in D.C. where we were looking at zoning regulations in the United States um, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out, you know, why, why is uh, San Francisco and L.A. so expensive? Um, well, a lot of it has to do with their housing supply. Uh, but now that you see a lot of people leaving, it's like, well, I guess now our prices have to drop. Um, which kind of, you know, kind of almost supports this uh, NIMBY idea where it's like, you know, if we kind of stick it out long enough, people will leave. But. Huh. So, I mean, I think prices are dropping. Right. And they're going to continue to drop. Uh I was wondering, though, if like there weren't some more radical thoughts you had about the way that this might transform society. Like in my mind, I'm thinking like there's going to be autonomous communities that are popping Mm. up where a bunch of families get together, like 60 people. And, you know, they buy a dozen houses and then, uh, you know, set them up in a way to have a self-sustaining community. They're all making money, you know, either. In the within the community or online in some way, and so there's very little um, integration into mm-hmm. the worldwide uh, like supply chain networks and things like that. I was thinking about like more radical stuff like that, mm. but um, yeah, I don't I, have I, too I, much on that. I mean, I, I do know that education is going to have to change a lot. You know, I'm I'm TAing this semester, and um, it seems like most of my students are going to be freshmen, and they're having to take it completely online because you know, COVID has hit, um, which, you know, the universities were left with this situation where first they had to tell students you're getting the same thing that you get in in person, but then eventually they're going to have to open up and they're going to have to convince those students, well, you're getting something in person that you're not getting online. So one way or another, you know, they're in a catch-22 here trying to sell their entire program. Yeah. But, um, I mean, so I I work for a company right now where we um, have a number of platforms for online education, one of mm-hmm. one of which that we're white labeling and another one that's for sort of um, uh, we're trying to solve sort of the credentialing problem mm-hmm. um, and figuring out like how to do micro credentialing 
for not only for uh, college certifications, but also for like employment. So mm. um, various kinds of employee targeted programs to get employees certified and doing online learning and things like that. Um, and there's definitely I think I think the biggest area for disruption in that space is going to be the um, the credentialing component. Once you remove credentialing from universities or mm -hmm. at least find a way to get around it in some way, then uh, I, I don't really know what the point of them is. I mean, other than the doing research, which I think is fine. I think if the university switched to a model where they were essentially just research houses um, that did a little bit of necessary um, uh, what am I thinking of? Not, not like mentoring, but but basically like training up the next crop of mm. researchers and academics. Um, and then what I imagine will happen is that there will be uh, basically models kind of like the Lambda School model yep. for all kinds of different areas of education, not just computer science and programming, but uh, for whatever can basically be, you know, exported to the online world effectively. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think even the humanities programs, even even humanities and social science programs, although they benefit a lot, or not, not not so much social science, but the humanities programs benefit a lot, I think, from the in-person feel to it. And the mm -hmm. way that they're marketed, at least at a lot of the liberal arts schools, is that you have the benefit of having small classroom sizes and, you know, attention from the professor and so forth. Um, but even those programs are going to get moved online. You know, like, I, I just don't see any reason, like, I mean, even I thought about it, like, you could put together a great books course and have someone go through a very classical liberal arts degree that has everything that they want and nothing that they don't want mm -hmm. and sell that as an online course at a tenth of the cost and still be making crazy amounts of money. Yeah, I mean, kind of like what you said about credentialing, that kind of reminds me, you know, seems like university systems have tried to attempt that, you know, with these, um, I think like Brown for a while had like a build your own major thing going on um, where it's like, yeah, yeah. just put your classes but, together. But they're going to be, be bad good. at it because they're not, they're not um, exposed to real market forces. Yeah. Yeah. Like and if you're and running, again, if you're running that experiment inside of Brown, well, you, mm -hmm. you're still Brown. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's you know, true. You're not, you're not Lambda school. You're not like Austin Allred whose kids are going to starve if they don't like, you know, get a 90% job placement rate or something. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, kind of the point I wanted to make about Brown, though, it comes back to this credentialing thing that you brought up, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, how well did the students who built their own major do compared to those who actually, you know, went through the traditional program and got, you know, oh, I am a computer scientist now, rather than I took a bunch of computer science classes in my self-education. Well, um, do you know the data on that? I don't know the data. I've heard a little bit from... Uh, some professors at Yale who, or sorry, not Yale, but Brown, who have said, you know, maybe we should kind of go back to just having the traditional majors because um, the students aren't learning as much as they thought they did, you know, at like their end of year assessments and classes and stuff. Uh, maybe that's just because they're bad at designing their own majors. Yeah, it could be that that is kind of a self-attracting thing is people who don't know what they want to do say, I'll do everything. That's right, what right, I would have right. done. But of course, it's not going to be like that. What will happen is there'll be a repackaging mm -hmm. of different offerings, you know, and with like the micro credentialing thing, um, you know, like so, for example, for my degree in political theory, I had to take uh, a certain like a certain number of like methods courses. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And those could be anything from, uh, you know, mathematics and, and, and like pure calculus, or I could take it as a logic course in the philosophy department. Interesting. You know? And so that itself, that, that part of my degree requirement would just become a micro credential. Mm-hmm. Right. And then of course I already had like the, the bachelor's degree is already designed to have basically, you know, you have this requirement and then a subset of, of options that you can fulfill that requirement with. I mean, moving that online is very, very simple. And then um, from there, just figuring out, well, okay, wh- which of these requirements are would actually fulfill that, you know? And then can you verify that and can you get that validated to the level where someone with this uh, online credentialing mm-hmm. is seen as equivalent or better than someone with a college degree? Now, what's interesting, did you see Google's new program of their credentialing yeah. system? Yeah, I mean, I think that's amazing um, where they've kind of just bypassed and said, well, we know what Google engineers need. So why don't we just teach people that? Um, yeah. Kind of blows my mind that, you know, they very in a ballsy manner said, we will use this in lieu of college educations. I think it takes um, like three months, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally short. They're like, yeah, here's our three months program, and by the way, we consider it equivalent to a CS degree. Like, yeah, what? It's amazing. Okay. I mean, yeah, you're not I... going to get the same entry level jobs as you would if you're coming out of like, you know, a decent university with the CS sure. degree and you're working at Google. But for their entry, as far as I understand it, for their entry level roles and getting into the like low level tech roles, mm-hmm. that's what they said. Like, same level. Yeah. I mean, you can pick that up, do a few internships, kind of prove your worth there, and then, you know, never set foot on a university in doing so. Um, well, I didn't know if they were just doing it for promotional reasons, but they did say, mm-hmm. like, look, here's a student that, that Google actually hired after completing our own program. So we mm-hmm. are putting our money where our mouth is and hiring our own students. Um, but I don't know if they're just doing that, like, for show to get people more in, in, interested in the program. They may never hire anyone from that yeah. uh, their own small program again. We'll see. I mean, one one thing that is interesting with universities is obviously the system can't last forever. Um, you know, I think one of the big it's things... It's only been like a thousand years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, what did the universities replace? They replaced the monastery system, which was kind of the keeper of knowledge. And the way the monasteries broke down was that the printing press was invented. And they said, you know what? Because towards the end of the monastery system, um, basically all of the money they were making aside from the lands that they held, which, you know, people were starting to take that back. Um, what was basically book rentals, book loans was okay. Uh, you want this text. Uh, we'll send a couple monks out there. Uh, you can look at it. They'll copy it for you and then you're good to go. Well, the printing press comes out. One person has this book. It's kind of, you know, all right, we'll just workshop and make this and send it wherever we need. And all of a sudden, this massive form of revenue for the monastic system just fell apart. And in a sense, what I see happening is, you know, in the university system is open science, open access journals, um, the way that pretty much now you can use, I mean, you can get on R or Python right now, start making scripts for very complex forms of data, uh, make all kinds of different analyses that, you know, 20 years ago, you'd need to have some kind of Stata or SAS background. You know, you need not licenses for these. Um, now it's like you can pretty much have a neat sitting in his basement saying, oh, I, you know, I think I really want to do some genetics 
work right now and you know figuring out things like educational attainment and genetics and things like you know there, there's all kinds of things that well, people are doing outside so, of the purview so, so we we know right from the fact that we're on twitter that there are like autodidacts out there mm-hmm. uh often they have twitter personalities uh who do t- do teach themselves these things right yeah. who will go and learn genetics and and learn it at a level where um you know they could they could read and comprehend and maybe even write at the level of a professional scientist mm-hmm. um and uh i'm not one of those people but <laughs> there are people that do it yeah um, and so it it does it's sort of like the the Freeman Dyson effect, where uh, you start to once all of this access uh, access to this knowledge is uh, is available to everybody, and the gatekeepers are removed. Now there's no reason that I need to go get a PhD to you know study neuroscience, for example, when I can mm-hmm. just do it at home. I mean, the frustrating thing at this point is more that um, the financial prohibitions to getting access to some of these journals that I've and, yeah. and that's kind of what I find really egregious uh that a lot of these uh these paywalls haven't been uh torn down yet yeah I mean Sci-Hub is you know this woman should get the Nobel Prize in Science like immediately for coming up with it um and you know taking on that sort of risk that she did um yeah I mean the journal system something has to budge with them. I mean, now you have major universities saying we're no longer paying fees to access your journal. So you're just going to have to deal with it. Um, I think, I think that they are going to fall very soon. Um, you know, obviously things like nature and science will remain just based well, that's on another monopoly that's just going to get destroyed by the internet. Yeah. Just like education is. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, like when I was in college, like, 2016 or something um you know this this fossil homo naledi was found it's like 18 individuals found in a say cave in south africa and um kind of shocked the world when the team instead of publishing it in science or nature published it in this obscure biology journal called elife where you could just hop on and download it immediately and it was basically them just saying you know all right you know we all have the prestige we need like why don't we move into this open access realm Mm-hmm. <clears throat> kind of you know it, 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 and back then it was kind of weird for people to be doing that but now you get online on twitter and people are like oh yeah come check out my preprint um right. <laughs> and the paper's already there except for you know it hasn't been reviewed people are typing in their comments to review it um just couldn't have imagined this i mean even like 20 years ago yeah well i think even just breaking people out of the mindset that they need permission from somebody yeah to go do stuff and contribute to, you know, new knowledge is a really, really big deal. I mean, even mm-hmm. for me, just starting this podcast uh, mm-hmm. was a big step in terms of validating this idea of like, oh, yeah, um, if I want to be like doing something, I can just go do it. And then I'm doing it. And now yeah. I'm that person. So like <laughs> you get rid of this, um, these imaginary uh, roadblocks that people pull up just because they think that. They're so conditioned that you have to go through a system and there have to be certain steps in place and you have to get certain qualifications and approvals. And um, with the Internet, I mean, just there's just so many areas that uh, you just don't need that anymore and you just can go do it. Yeah, I think about Steven Spielberg, you know, talking about what's what's, you know, your biggest advice for people who want to be directors like you. And he said literally, like, grab your phone and start making videos right now, like 
yeah. have the ability to do that. And now, now whenever I think about people saying, man, I, I really wish I could do a study on this. I'm like, dude, people, people are publishing their data. You can go in, reanalyze their data, or look at new forms of data. I mean, everything's so open right now. Um, no, yeah, I, and it's I, really it's really just getting your, yourself, you know, disciplined and focused enough to then go after it and investigate mm-hmm. the problems that you want to solve. Yeah. Right. And uh, now, obviously, not everybody is is going to be able to understand everything that they want to they want to know about. Yeah. But um, you'd be surprised, especially I, I feel like most of the people that are listening to this are fairly smart um, and uh, can probably do a lot more than they think. Um, so, uh, since we last talked, uh, you were sort of in a very, um, I guess, uh, uncertain place with, with, as far as like what you were doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. you were sort of a, a grad student in purgatory, I believe was what you, you said. Um, so you're in sort of some sort of, uh, imposed exile of some kind, um, (laughs) From academic life, I believe there's some issue with your previous advisor. I we don't really need to get into that, but um, where are you now, and what have you been up to, and what do you think your future research interests are going to be? Yeah, sure. Uh, last year has been crazy, just 2020 in general. I mean, in terms of all kinds of things that happened, but also my life. I feel like everybody that quickly. comes out of this is going to be like some sort of super strong human, <laughs> <laughs> because. This is- I mean, this is how I get the really, Ubermensch. <laughs> well, it's just really dark to say it, but a lot of people aren't coming out of this, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, we're losing, obviously, we're losing lots of people to the virus, but also, like, the general chaos and unrest, um, and also the now the economic devastation. I mean, um, the businesses and the people that, that make it out of this are going to be a different different stock. I mean, I feel like it's almost like a, a silent generation type phenomenon mm. where uh, it's almost like we're all going through one collective traumatic experience Yeah. and whatever comes out of this, the world that we create after this is going to be, you know, informed by that. Yeah. I think uh, Razib Khan said something like there's been more history in 2020 than the last 15 years, um, which is really interesting. You know, you talked about the whole Iran thing. It's just weird to me to think that whole, them shooting down their own plane happened this year. I mean, that's just feels like a different world to me. Yeah, who's Soleimani? It, yeah, exactly. Who? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so yeah. After we um, uh, talked on the podcast last, like the next day, literally the next day, I went to DC. Um, I had an internship there um, that ended up going to Romo. I got another internship up there. Um, and then in the meantime, I was kind of applying to grad school. I did some interviews. Um, and finally, I'm, I'm no longer in purgatory. Um, now I'm at the University of California, Merced, albeit uh, remotely in their um, cognitive and information sciences department. Uh, it's kind of a interesting, very eclectic department. A lot of people studying things like, um, you know, uh, neurology and the way that, you know, your brain processes information. And then some people studying like human computer interaction, some people studying philosophy of mind. Um, I picked an advisor who he studies cultural evolution, um, which has been something I talk up, talk a lot about on my uh, blog and on Twitter. Um, kind of my, my future research directions. Um, I'm interested in like 
a lot of different like population dynamics modeling. Um, so some of the things that we've kind of touched on, like talking about Turchin and stuff like that, I don't know about literally doing cloud dynamics, um, but I am interested in, you know, why is it that certain populations behave certain ways at different times in terms of things like uh, technological um, adoption and innovation. Um, you know, it's kind of amorphous for me. I'm, I'm still working on a few other questions um, and like traditional almost evolutionary psychology, um, but it seems like my research chain, my research experience, my research interests are changing a lot in the last few months. Hmm. So just sort of the focus on um, developing like like certain um, I guess technological milestones, or are you talking about like this, a certain scale, like different scales of social complexity? Um, different scales of social complexity, but also one question I've been interested in is, you know, we have all these different what we call small scale economic games. Um, you know, anthropologists go to different places around the world. They then say, okay, um, we're going to play like, like a prisoner's dilemma game or something. You know, I'm, I'm going to see, you know, if, 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 if you have the choice to split the pot with someone, are you going to do it? You had a third person and it's like, okay, if this person doesn't split the pot, you can, you know, pay 5% to punish them. And, you know, people, people do this to college students all the time in their psychology classes, but people also go to different societies and they figure out um, how is it that people um, behave in different cultures. Mm -hmm. um, one of the unfortunate things is that economists um, in trying to assess the role of culture have only really looked at um, risk-taking behaviors. Um, when we know that there are so many different factors that go into um, the way that people behave in their own individual cultures. Um, and so I'm interested in kind of maybe improving some of those models and saying, you know, what, what happens when we stop looking at just risk um, and look at, say, sharing and things like that? Um, uh, so, so you mean uh, the models so far have mostly been interested in different levels of risk-taking. Um, but, I mean, aren't they also trying to see, like, if certain cultural influences change the way that those decisions are made. Yeah, sure. Like, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, there's certainly isn't, work on Isn't pro-sociality like kind of the same, yeah, uh, just the other side of that coin? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it just, I, I maybe I might be speaking too much for economics, but uh, the last time that I kind of reviewed a chapter, an econ chapter for someone, they were like, okay, like, pretty much what we're going to do is we're just going to be talking about risk in terms of different cultural groups. And I was like, yeah. you know, it seems like this is a very inefficient way of viewing how people behave in um, economic situations around the world. Well, it's interesting that you brought up um, that you brought up those small, like uh, economic games because uh, Turchin was actually talking about this, uh, about when I, when I mentioned the, the different scales of social complexity, mm -hmm. he was talking about um, cooperation across genetic lines within species. And he was saying that one of the anomalous things about humans is the sheer level of complexity that we've been able to achieve in social cooperation with people who are genetically dissimilar than us, right? So we have cities and nations and organizations that are in the millions 
that encompass mm-hmm. lots of genetically diverse individuals, and yet we're able to continue to cooperate. As far as we know, there's no other species that really does that. Um, you know, these ant colonies that cooperate in the level of millions, they're doing it in the millions, but they're all genetically extremely similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very interesting to me that you brought that up as um, as uh, you were talking more about economic games within cultures. But I guess it's more that the economic games themselves is what allows that extreme level of cooperation, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this point about complexity and scaling is a little bit different, but it is an interesting one. Um, it is kind of weird that you kind of look at humans and you have to ask, you know, what would have been the kind of biological factor, you know, external factor that forced us, or didn't force us, but allowed us all to get together in the way we are now, you know. Uh, anthropologists like to give this classic antidote, which is uh, what happens if you put a bunch of chimpanzees on a 747? I mean, they would just be tearing each other apart. Um, but in the meantime, you have us, and we're, we're living in cities, um, just, just completely building completely different things that, um, you know, like a group of, say, like 140 people at their maximum Dunbar load wouldn't be able to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we're living in cities, uh, and uh, one of the things I wanted to actually talk about from last time uh, is uh, is is the point of cities. So we've been talking about moving away from cities, people's getting out of the cities, people moving from uh, the larger cities to the more medium, mid-sized cities. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that the um, the power of cities as attractors in terms of um, what the the benefits of scaling at, in large cities will offset these uh, these migrations that are happening away from cities, or like like in that places like New York, places like San Francisco are going to do a hard reset and really just not be the same kind of powerhouses that they were before, and maybe the power will move to other geographical locations. Or do you think that, no, 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 the network effects of cities and the scaling laws that are already operating are so strong that even with all these other factors, they're going to continue to pull in more resources? Yeah, I mean, I think that's number two is more likely, um, you know, in a sense. So you think New York is bouncing back? <laughs> uh, I didn't say that, but. All right. um... <laughs> I, won't, I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> no, but I mean, pretty much. Every city that has gone through some kind of major disaster um, in the past 500 years, you know, at least in Europe, still exists in some capacity. Um, they didn't just disappear after their own pandemics, um, for the most well, part. Sure, but Rome was never great again. Yeah, true. I mean, true. we're not. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's an Italian party that's running on make <laughs> Rome great again. If they are, I guess I support it. But, um. <laughs> You know, it's never been the same, right? And the same yeah. uh, same thing with London, right? London at its height is probably not going... Uh, obviously, London is still a, it's pro- maybe top three or four important cities in the world. But um, there are other cities we could look at that are really, really old and that were once amazing cities, great centers of commerce and culture and art and so forth Excellent. that are just no longer that. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if coronavirus will be the thing that does that to our cities. Uh, certainly. I think maybe. C- certainly. Well, I mean, cer- certainly 
I don't want to go back to level. New York. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I never lived in New York, but I've been there um, four or five times, and uh, it, it never made me want to live there. Anyway. Yeah. No, I kind of had the same experience. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the big thing, like you said, is about this remote working thing. Um, I, I do see places like, you know, Des Moines, Iowa. I don't, I don't know if I see Tulsa doing as well as like Austin or Des Moines. Um, but, you know, I mean, we still have our global supply chain. Um, things still have to go in and out of these cities, although a lot of things still go in and out of like Baltimore and, you know, they kind of don't exist in the same way that they did in like the 1950s. I'm not really sure. Um, somewhere like San Francisco will certainly bounce back because the reason people move there is because the view and the climate. San Francisco is a little bit different from New York in that it's not, at least from it's my It's actually enjoyable to live in. Yeah, yeah. It's It's not about like this is where I have to live or else, you know, I can't exist. You know, D.C. is always going to be D.C. just because it's the capital and that's where, you know, 90% of the government's money is spent in a day. So, but yeah, you know, yeah, New York City is an interesting one. Um, especially now coupled with the riots. I I don't want to make a prediction on whether or not it will bounce back, but certainly this trend, like we talked about with people moving to Austin, um, might be long term. Everyone, oh, yeah. I saw some. I saw some. I saw some interesting charts of you know where people are leaving and where they're going to. And yeah, it's basically everyone's moving to Texas right now. Yeah. Well, people like it out there. At least, um, I. <laughs> they're complaining about the laws all becoming California laws, but we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, awesome, awesome, Cody. Well, uh, this has been a, a great conversation so far. I don't know if do you want to do you want to keep going? Yeah, I'm not sure. sure how much. Okay, sorry. I yeah, just wasn't not... sure if we were reaching a time limit. Um, I, I have the whole afternoon basically blocked off until like seven. Nice. So uh, we can keep going if you're if you're still interested in it. Yeah, sounds good to me. Okay, so uh, elite overproduction, right? Um, so you we we mentioned elite overproduction last time. As contributing to a lot of the social unrest, mm -hmm. you uh, we talked about how the um, uh, elite inter-elite competition, right, is one of the major factors in Turchin's model. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the inter-elite competition is driven by, in part, this uh, component of elite interproduction, which oddly enough is also intertwined with all of our conversations about education and the way that that's going to be changing. Yeah. So let's get into over elite overproduction a little bit. Um, first off, do you want to just remind everybody what elite overproduction is? Um, and obviously, I don't want to just be... We, we've been talking about Peter Turchin a lot, and maybe I should mm -hmm. just have him on the show at this point. But <laughs> um, I don't want to make this all about what he's said or is saying in his studies. That's not what the whole point of this episode was. So mm -hmm. um, as an anthropologist, I do want to get your particular take on elite overproduction, where we're at yeah. with it how it contributes. Yeah, I mean, so the idea of elite overproduction is kind of this point when we meet a critical mass where we're producing people for certain jobs that um, are limited in space. Well, there comes a point when you produce people who have the expectation that they're going to get those jobs to those positions, um, and they simply can't, uh, despite their best efforts. Um, and so you have too many people trained for one thing, 
um, and they're not going to get it. You know, there's there's this question of, well, so I'll give an example. So a lot of people want to be journalists, but uh, there aren't that many journalism positions anymore. Um, a lot of people want to say work in D.C. doing things, uh, but there aren't that many positions doing that. Um, you know, we, we had this point, you know, back in the 1970s where people could go to college, they come out, they go to any random firm, they look a guy straight in the eye, shake their hand, and then they're hired, and then they're making, you know, 60K, the equivalent of 60K now for the rest of their lives, and, you know, they're all of a sudden buying property and things like that. It's not happening anymore. Um, and people are pretty disappointed that those expectations don't meet anymore. Um, that's pretty much what um, elite overproduction is. Um, so wait, hold on, hold on. I'm going to stop you right now. I know sure. you're in the middle of it, but um, so from an economic standpoint, it's simply this, the fact that there's an oversupply of people with a particular skill set, right? Mm -hmm. And no demand for them because Indeed. there's too many. Yeah. But there's a deeper political implication, which has to do, I, I would say, with the fact that you have elite overproduction in certain areas, like, uh, let's say, um, cultural production, mm -hmm. right? So elite overproduction areas of like, like academia and yep. journalism and um, areas related to, to politics and so forth. Uh, or I mean, even in science, if you have too many people that are very, very high skilled, they're high agency people. And so the political problem, which is actually a step up from the economic issue, mm -hmm. starts to come into play because of what will happen when you have people that are high agency, very smart, very skilled, and yet they're not economically, um, let's say, gratified for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's the big problem. Um, and so from elite overproduction, you kind of have this other system going at the same time called intra-elite competition. And it's basically mm -hmm. people vying for these spots and, you know, trying to knock each other out of the way and um, get into them. You know, this has been pretty popular. I feel like a lot of people on Twitter or elsewhere have been commenting on it. Um, I say it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I see it in a lot of places. Um, you know, after some conversations with people, I don't think it's really happening in the way that maybe uh, Turchin thought it is or that a lot of people think it's happening. Um, you know, it seemed like, and I'm, I'm drawing on a friend who I spoke at length to about this, um, but one thing that we're kind of ignoring here is um, intergenerational conflict, um, which is that, you know, you have, and I I don't want to, you know, sound ageist or anything, but you do have baby boomers who have like, you know, they bought like five or six different houses and, you know, saw these as, you know, commodities to own in their lives and um, didn't retire from any of their positions and they're earning all the wealth. What? Yeah, in, in in essence, you know, they kind of took Gen X and held their head under the water and said, you know, deal with it. And then after that, you know, the generations keep stacking up in, in terms of, you know, the pressure that's happening on this system. Um, I, I think that is something that is kind of not taken into account in most of Turchin's models. You know, one, one thing that was really interesting to me was this picture that was trending on uh, Chinese social media this year. Um, and it showed a bunch of, uh, you know, agents of the Chinese government uh, meeting with um, agents of the American government. And what you see is a bunch of young uh, Chinese men and women uh, sitting across the table from a bunch of basically old uh, men who are just like 
you know, there's no way that like they can talk at length in the same capacity about these issues that these, you know, younger Chinese dudes who have their whole lives to look ahead of them um, are. It's just that these guys have held on to these senior positions as long as possible. And what's interesting is that someone um, took that picture and they put a picture of like the first U.S. delegation to China. And it was a complete opposite. A bunch of young Americans uh, meeting with like old, you know, decrepit Chinese men. Um, and it's kind of creepy. It's, you know, it's it's that there is this kind of similar historical crisis or process going on. Um, but it's it's not, I mean, it's definitely elite in some way, but I do think that it's generational too. Yeah. So I, I would say that the generational gap is actually like a, a sub component of yeah. elite overproduction. Yeah, right? because sure. It's it's not just it's not just that the elites skew old and that they're not retiring from their positions and yep. you know promoting younger people and whatnot and letting their their son or daughter take over the company. It's also that um, you know the fact that they're the fact that people are living longer and therefore and have been getting educated mm-hmm. in mass for at least sixty years um, means that they're now you know is the supply problem. So. Well, and but, the other the other big problem is that, yeah, then you have kind of a sticky culture in that you have the culture of these previous generations just sticking around a lot longer um, than they used to. You know, there isn't that kind of turnover. Um, that's how we get this kind of dissatisfaction with um, our college degrees and things like that, because we're still selling the same story because those stories in terms of how they resulted in people getting to their positions are still around. Um Right. Yeah. And people do talk about this. They talk about like, for example, with the, um, you know, with the overqualification problem where, you know, MBAs only want to promote other people with MBAs, because if I promote someone who doesn't have an MBA to my level, then what does that mean about me? You know, yada, yada, yada. Um, That's definitely, definitely um, a a big, big, big problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of the... uh, gerontocracy though which is what we're talking about sort of rule by the old and i do agree with you that i think that the united states does have that problem and that it does have the second order effect on the institutions themselves not being refreshed with new ideas and new leadership um from the younger generation i mean i think eric weinstein talks about this a lot he talks about the fact that there are almost no uh, millennial or gen x college presidents yeah and that at this point if we were at the same point in the 1960s, there would have been actually like a significant number of not only Gen X presidents, but there would also be some millennials on the older end of the millennial spectrum who are in their late thirties, early forties, who would be coming up and becoming presidents. And that's just not happened at all. There's like none. Um, And so that is a a big problem and it is going to be hard to stay competitive in a global world. If uh, you're dealing with an aging society, I know Japan is having a, that same problem, but on a lot more severe level because of their uh, their demographic shift. And one way in which the United States is actually trying to, um, I guess, alleviate this problem, and one way that a lot of um, a lot of capitalists would like this problem to be relieved is through immigration. You know, it seems mm-hmm. to me like the Democratic Party, like they all talk about this demographic shift. They know that our society is too old at the top and too top heavy. Um, and that we're going to need a younger workforce to replace them. And it sounds to me like at least one half of the political spectrum in this country wants to 
literally just replace it with new blood from other places instead of, I don't know, trying to get our population numbers up or something, our birth rate up, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting because, you know, I'm not sure I'm not sure that encouraging people to have kids would even solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, it's unclear to me, like whether the pro natalist policies that they're trying in places like, um, uh, like Hungary and Poland and elsewhere are actually like very effective. I don't know. What do you think? Do you know, you probably know more than I do about whether, whether those have been, have been, uh, useful programs. I mean, I think that's something we need like another, like three years on, cause it's going to take a while. Like I'm kind of laughing because Hungary's case, what is it that he pays you for each child and pays you to not work if you're a woman. Well, yeah, um, if you have like four kids, you have some enormous amount of tax incentives. So that's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I guess we'll need a few years to see what happens with that. I, you know, I, I don't really see, I don't really see that as a solution and I don't really see immigration as a solution either, you know, aside from the societal trends, what you do see is demographically speaking, um, immigrants into the United States just pretty much converge on our birth rate as well. So it's like, okay, I mean, you can do this for as long as you want, but this kind of cycle is still continuing. <laughs> oh, right, right. So the developed nation, you're talking about the problem of developing nations just having declining birth rates in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That seems to be some sort of technological problem that's um, mediated by factors outside of just uh, culture, you're saying? Um, you see it cross-culturally, right? So you're saying the new immigrants will have the same base rate, birth rate, baseline birth rate, because they it doesn't matter where they they're from. Close. Yeah, they get yeah. close. And I mean, a lot of it has to do with um, nutrition, you know, um, uh, female opportunity. So, you know, women go to school and they're like, well, I guess I can make a job. I'm not going to have kids right now. Um yeah, I mean, technologically speaking, there's a few things there. Uh, I mean, I'm 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 thinking back to Janet Yellen had a pretty good essay called "Technology Shock," but it but it was actually it was about the opposite effect, where she said that the introduction of the condom actually made uh, birth rates um, in minority and poorer populations explode, um, which was kind of this effect that. Uh, Charles Murray talked about coming apart, where people start copying elite behaviors, um, but not doing it exactly. And so it kind of became desirable for men to seek out women um, who didn't care if they used condoms or not. Um, and women kind of adopted that norm in certain areas of the country and had birth explosions. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what the solution to the big demographic crisis is going to be i mean there's a few people who like to say oh well you know having kids is actually heritable and so eventually you're going to have a population in which a lot of people have kids simply because you know this is what's come up to their genes is it's just how you know the the genes that people who aren't having kids are going to die out and so a lot of people have this wonderful view of like the united states of america and in 20 years being basically 50% Mormon and 50% Amish. But I, I don't even think that's going to happen. I mean, those are like the fastest growing um, and only like above replacement level Caucasian I mean, populations just, in the United States. If you just do States. the math, if you just do the math on like, you know, reproduction rates at, you know, 
two X versus uh one X. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like I don't know about twenty years, but maybe in like a hundred years. Oh uh, yeah, I mean twenty years was just an exaggeration. Yeah, Receipt had a really good blog post on this a while back, um, where someone basically uh, did a simulation of like, all right, let's just assume that they keep growing at their current rates, and yeah, you know, there's just basically an Amish wave that takes over America. But... Yeah, it's just like Pennsylvania, just like largest yeah. voting block states or something. But of course, they're limited by their certain ecological constraints. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but so. that's how they have the high birth rate, right? It's the cultural insulation yeah. from our uh, destructive uh, Tinder and whatnot that I, yeah, our I mean, birth that's, that's exactly what it is. I mean, that's that's why Mormons have so many kids because it is, it is a cultural thing to do so. It's the same thing that people used to say about Catholics until I, – I don't know when the Catholic turn in America on birth control was, but it seems they're kind of more open to using it now. Mm-hmm. So uh, you said uh, in a tweet earlier that uh, people who don't understand your field say things like uh, anthropology is not a science. I want to get into that real quick. Sure. Because uh, it surprised me that you said that, but it's not entirely, you know, that surprising. Um, In what ways is anthropology a science? Um, And uh, how do you justify that claim? Yeah, so I want to kind of emphasize that let's kind of make a really strong argument by kind of using like what people's view of anthropology is. So anthropology is kind of four fields. So you have biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, archaeology, um, and linguistic anthropology. Let's just throw the biological out and the archaeology out and the linguistic out, you know, things that would kind of fall under a science and like, let's just focus on the cultural thing. Um, you know, there's plenty of people who do use cultural anthropology as a science. Um, you know, the field is kind of split in terms of people who want to focus on feels versus reels. You know, you have people who say, uh, I'm going to do an ethnography of punk rock youth in detroit for the next year or so okay that's not really a science i mean you're collecting data but you're not testing anything you're not doing anything like that um but you know there's also people who say i'm going to follow these hunter gatherers around for a year and every time they kill something i'm going to weigh it and then weigh how much they give to their friends like i mean that is like clearly a science of like social dynamics in some way um you know there there's a lot of people when they see anthropology, they say, "Ugh, like, God, here come these guys again. Uh, you know, if they have any opinions on social science. But I mean, there are people doing very real, very quantitative work in the field. Um, they just tend to be overbrushed by um, people who aren't doing that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, if there's one perception I'd like to change about the field, it's that, you know, compared to a lot of different components of the university um it does social science pretty well i mean the the problem in anthropology you know where you see people who say oh there is no such thing as an external reality or anything like that is that it's extremely localized to specific universities um in my entire time at going through like three different institutions um i never once met an anthropologist who had that worldview i only knew people who said I don't even see how that's remotely productive and I couldn't get along with someone like that. 
Um, so, but, so you're saying that there's a my my understanding is that the way that anthropology gets misconstrued has largely to do with the politicization of the field, right? Mm-hmm. That there are uh, areas of anthropology that have been politicized, and therefore they're not viewed as legitimate scientific inquiries because they're sort of start with a conclusion and then work their way towards it. <laughs> um, yeah. And these are more often focused in the realm of cultural anthropology. Yep. Um, but you you don't think it's just so you don't you don't think it's just from the um the overwhelming political bias inside of inside of the departments. Do you think that plays a role, or do you think in largely even though uh, obviously anthropologists skew in one direction, for the most part it doesn't really affect the uh, I guess the quality and the rigor of their research. For some people it does. I, I won't lie. There are some people who just their political beliefs completely spoils the way that they view the world and can sometimes ruin the way that they do science or view science. But I mean, I often look to my mentor, this guy, Mike Alvard, um, who is kind of a character on Texas A&M University's campus. Um, he got arrested <laughs> last month. Um, because he's he's had this campaign, which uh, Sullivan Ross was like the third president of Texas A&M or something. Um, and Mike likes to say, oh, this guy was a racist. We need to tear down his statue and all this other stuff. But, you know, he has all kinds of amazing papers, like critiquing um, the noble savage, uh, you know, why anthropology needs science. I mean, he, he talks often about the postmodern enemies of science and why they don't actually belong in certain places in, you know, academia. Um, so it's like, you know, this guy has very strong political convictions, but at the same time, it, it hasn't spoiled his research at all. Um, you know, I, I, I'd wager that, you know, most anthropologists are extremely leftist. Um, and That's even been my experience. That, yeah, yeah. And I mean, even with that said, you know, I don't think most allow that to sneak into their research. Okay. All right. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, I'll take you at your word. Uh, and obviously, I'm not trying to get you to put other anthropologists under the bus or anything like that. Um, but I was just a little bit curious about that tweet. Um, we could go into, I mean, I, I wasn't planning on having a discussion about like philosophy of science and like sure. hard versus soft science and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I think that if I if I was more inclined, I would pick a little bit at... Um, even the categories that you sort of excluded, like biological anthropology and um, uh, blah, 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 evolutionary anthropology yeah, and yeah. archaeological anthropology, that I still think that some questions there about like what exactly the difference is. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for me, like uh, I don't so I don't have any formal training in a quantitative discipline. Right. Uh, my 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 degree is in political theory, mm-hmm. but the appeal to something like uh, of something like uh, cliodynamics to me was that like here's somebody that's actually applying this very quantitative method yep. to you know history or what we would view as sort of a very soft or open to interpretation kind of narrative focused field, and that's mm-hmm. what I liked about it was trying to just 
get away from these um these narratives and like psychological projections about how we how we do work um i'd like to make more more political more quantitative political theory but uh I'm not sure if I'm quite prepared to be to be doing that yet. So we'll see. We'll see about it. Um, a few more topics here. Uh, briefly, what do you think of the IDW? First off, I'm going to ask you, are you part of it? <laughs> and then secondly, uh, where is it going? Is it still a thing? Uh, it seems to me like there's a lot of fracturing going on right now, even among it's sort of affiliates and a lot of people are distancing themselves from the label. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, it's kind of weird. It seems like, um, what it all started with Dave Rubin and then kind of went Did downhill it? from there. Or maybe it was Jordan Peterson. I know like, you know, Michael Shermer would say some things like you got some wacky beliefs over there, man. Um, oh, I think they're still friends. Um, yeah, you know, I think Eric, who is probably like my favorite IDW character. I'm going to call them all characters because, you know, it's... Yeah, they are like They this. are kind of like a... It is sort of like a comic superhero-y vibe yeah. going on where it's like you've got like the New York Times article with like each of them in their own little slots in the bushes. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, these are the heroes of like, uh, I don't know, intellectual inquiry yeah. or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you have, like, the math character, you have the biology character, you have the guy saving podcasting, You're like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and then you had Alice Dredger, who turned it down immediately, um, which was interesting. Well, so this is, what I, this is what I'm saying. Like, so I've seen, for example, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, right, mm-hmm. who I think they get called IDW, yeah. but when they get called IDW, the first thing that they say is, I'm not IDW. And uh, I actually had Bo Weingart on uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we had a similar conversation where it was like, well, people say that I'm IDW because they think that I am because I sort of have a lot of overlap in terms of like the political issues that I care about. But he's like, I don't associate with that label. Like, I don't identify with it. So you can ascribe it to me, but it's not my thing. You know? Well, you know, I will say at a certain point, yeah, there is the idw that is like the like is claire is claire lemon idw is is quillette idw i don't know certainly i don't think so yeah well i think i think that in the same way that they pick and choose different people who they're going to call postmodernists. i think that (laughs) (laughs) i mean you pick and choose people who are part of like this totally different kind of institution you know it's it's something you know i i I have been having this postmodernist discussion literally since i started the show (laughs) <laughs> I've had at least three people on now where a significant portion of the discussion and this I'm not including you in this where mm-hmm. a significant portion of the discussion was trying to trace out what is this exact connection with postmodernism and critical theory and all of this new stuff coming out of the academy yeah. and I've done it with Stephen Hicks I did it with James Lindsay and uh, I believe I even talked about it I, I forgot who else I talked about it with but I've done it at least with two people that have spent significant amounts of time and written books where they where they say that they're doing this, that they're yeah. explaining this connection. And despite the podcast and despite uh, on top of that, all the discussions that I see and am involved in on Twitter about it, I haven't seen a like a rock solid argument that like traces the lineage of these ideas in a way that that actually connects them very solidly together. Mostly it's like a lot of 
social maps where uh, people have been saying like they've been criticizing James Lindsay like, oh, you don't believe in guilt by association. But whenever you talk about the postmodernists, you literally just like draw a social graph of like people who've like cited each other yeah. and then say that that's the uh, that's the connection. So like, what do you think of that? I, I totally think that's true. Um, if he wants to label people as postmodernists that way, it's completely valid. And it works the same for the IDW. You know, you have postmodernists who, if you would have called them postmodernists, they would have kind of laughed in your face and said, well, I certainly don't believe I'm that label. Like, who are you to say I, I'm part of, you know, Paul Feyerabend, for example, like um, he, he wrote a brilliant book that really changed my life called Against Method. Um, but the last chapter of that book, he's just like, why are you looping me in with these people? Uh, Bruno Latour, who uh, was kind of, you know, I guess you could consider like everyone's worst nightmares during the science wars, said, well, I actually don't believe all those things that you guys are saying, I believe. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, you say guilt by association, but like, like network effects are very real. Um, and people do tend to talk about similar things that influence people all the same. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I that's, think that's a vacuous argument. I don't think what he's doing is guilt by association, but that's what people yeah. are saying. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't call it guilt by association. It's just association. Um, and I, and I, you <laughs> know, I, I kind of... Association. It's actual association, yeah. And I mean, I, I say the same thing for the IDW. I mean, if I want to say there is like a real IDW, I can say it, but then there is also the movement that in itself, um, despite what their independent beliefs are, there is kind of a network that uh, kind of survives and thrives off of each other. Um, you know, is it actually fracturing? I guess a little bit, but I think it's only fracturing to the extent that it's getting bigger. And so the networks are kind of changing around a little bit from this tightly clustered group of like eight people to now you do have Helen um, and then James Lindsay. And I guess you could, I mean, you wouldn't throw Oliver Traldi in there, but I saw someone made a uh, kind of Excel sheet with a bunch of different people, like, and they threw him on the list. But well, so I'll just tell you, Oliver Traldi and I had a podcast that was literally about the IDW. Yeah. Yeah. And in that show, uh, he's, he self-identifies as IDW. Oh, interesting. So oh, he really? says, yeah. So he says he's in the IDW, and that was interesting to me because I wouldn't claim that myself. Although, I mean, I guess he has like written for Quillette, and he's published in a number of like sort of IDW friendly outlets. Um, but uh, he identifies as part of the diaspora. So, yeah, like we've okay. talked about how there's different levels to it. Like, there's the original IDW, which is like the Avengers. And then they're sort of like, they're sort of like these lesser, uh, he called it, he called it as part of the IDW diaspora. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, it, in terms of like what Eric Weinstein said was he said that they were going to be the Vanguard. And then after the Vanguard, there would be a second generation. I think that this group of people that, uh, I'm sort of coming up with this crop of, of, um, I guess they're sort of like influencers, but they're sort of more like online content creators. Um, I think that that is more similar to like the the post Vanguard group that's yeah. coming up. So maybe it is an IDW diaspora. Mm -hmm. But I was just wondering what you think about that label. I mean, I I'm uncomfortable giving myself that label just because I don't want to limit my 
options, right? Yeah. Like it's somewhat limiting um, if you adopt that label. And uh, and also, I just don't feel like I'm actually in that group. Like nobody knows who I am. So, um, yeah. but uh, what do you, what do you think about that diaspora concept? I mean, I, I've been trying to wrap my head around what is this group of people that I sort of that all sort of mutually follow each other on Twitter and are sort of coming up in a similar overlapping political sphere. It's not clear to me that the 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 bubble that I'm in mm-hmm. is a like a particularly right bubble or or particularly left bubble we have lots of people at least that i talk to who are on the right or on the left in some form but there is some sort of dissatisfaction with the current options that are available in our Mm -hmm. discourse that and that's what seems to sort of unite us yeah no i totally see that um i i agree with this diaspora concept um have you have you been in uh, Eric Weinstein's uh, Discord? I'm in the Discord, but I never check it. Yeah, it's pretty big. Um, it's, it's it's actually it's so overwhelming that every time I look at it, I just I just look at all the stuff and I'm like I can't take the time to learn this yeah. and like decide which parts of it I'm interested in. So then I just close out of it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. I but mean, I get the notifications when everybody gets notified. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah, it seems it seems like yeah, there is like this social media IDW diaspora. Um, I I bring up Eric's Discord because I do wonder. Looking at just it seems like the vast majority of people in there are like software engineers or people in tech. Very tech focused. I'm, like, I'm like yeah, I'm like what does this look like? What does this kind of movement look like in industry? I mean, is it a thing? <laughs> well, but. I think it's mostly because the major figures of the IDW started out on the West Coast. Uh, basically you had the epicenters in like San Francisco and LA, because if you think about it, like Ruben and Rogan and Sam Harris are all in LA and so is Ben Shapiro. Mm. Right. And then, um, uh, Eric Weinstein and like Peter Thiel, like all those guys, they were in San Francisco originally, and then they moved to LA. So now they're in LA too. Um, and uh, so I think it was mostly just because it kind of started in and, and also and also probably it's because the monoculture that had formed inside of the tech um, yeah. community in San Francisco made it so that the problem was at its most severe point in that. Totally area. agree. Because totally that's where agree. you have all yeah. the closet conservatives and, you yeah. know, people who don't feel comfortable speaking their mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I actually I was thinking about that right after I asked the question. I was like, actually. You know, just knowing a lot of people who work in tech up there, I mean, it's the way they describe it. They're like, I I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Yeah, but I I would say just from getting like an internal look at like the numbers. So like I have some idea based on just the reach of this podcast, who's listening. And I would say that like on the IDW content, it's pretty dispersed. Yeah. You know, like there's there's some concentration in San Francisco and L.A., and a little bit in like Toronto, for example. Toronto's big, probably because of like Jordan Peterson and um, Deborah So and some others. But uh, it's it's um it's pretty. You know, first off, one thing people need to realize is it's an international movement, right? So like for example, when Jordan Peterson went on tour in Europe, he was huge in places like you know Slovenia and Norway yeah. and all over the place. So it's not just an American 
phenomenon. Um, we don't think of it that way because everybody that's in the group is American except the Canadians. And, um, and the rest of the world basically pays attention to our politics and our news cycle. But like when I put out a show that it's got James Lindsay on it, or even the Oliver Traldi IDW episode, you know, that gets hits all over the place. You've obviously got a base in Australia, thanks to the Quillette crowd. Um, but also Japan is listening, people in South America. So I, I really think it's everywhere. It's not really limited to um, one uh, one area. And I also think it's actually, there's more class diversity than people think too. Um, I think there's this, I mean, obviously, I think there's a somewhat of a bias towards more highly educated people. Um, but there is a certain like populist appeal to the IDW that is there. Like, it seems to me like the there's kind of a a friendly relationship with some right wing populist ideas and some left wing populist ideas mm -hmm. that don't get a lot of play from either parties. Um, and also, like, there does seem to be some like a, a certain level of respect for non-traditional jobs, non-traditional education, blue collar work, that kind of thing. They don't have contempt for it in the IDW in, in a way that you get from, um, well, the DNC, for example. <laughs> um, but so, so, so I do think there is some working class appeal as well is what I'm saying. I, I don't think it's just, you know, software engineers at Google complaining about James Damore or whatever. I'm kind of interested. I do want to know, has anyone like built like a Twitter network to kind of look and see what the IDW looks like? Because in my mind, I kind of see like two strains of it. One is like the Eric Weinstein strain. You know, people are listening to Eric, Brett, um, a few other people there. And then there is like the Quillette.com strain that is. Uh, there's also mostly... the Game B folks. Yeah. And there's also Game B. I, and yeah. And that's like completely different. That's a beast of its own. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of. Uh, they overlap kinda, a lot. They've kind of given me an idea for something to look at here in a minute. But. Yeah, um, whether or not I see myself as IDW, I don't think so. But again, this this is like one of those things, like I don't think you get to pick. Like it's just however people see you at a certain point. It's just whatever your network is, but. Uh, really? I think I think you could self-identify as your own. I I feel like, you know, the temptation is you want to identify as something. But like for me, for example, a lot of this podcast is me actually just working out what it is that I actually think about these issues. Yeah. You know, that's why we're we're non um, we're non ideologically committal, mm -hmm. which is probably a, a detriment in terms of gaining like listenership and mass appeal. Because if you if I just come out and say I'm a conservative podcast or I'm a libertarian podcast or I'm a progressive podcast, I automatically have a pre-built niche that i can just yeah. slot into yeah. whereas if you're trying to actually do something original you you have this problem of well how do i define this group that i'm trying to create you know mm -hmm. and and what what do I, does that mean about my own beliefs i mean i think the common thing in the idw diaspora if you want to call it that is that everybody became politically homeless whether you became politically homeless on the left or politically homeless on the right it didn't really matter there were lots of people who didn't really know where they fit anymore Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, at least, I'm still figuring that out. And I'm happy that uh, I have a lot of friends that I met on Twitter and people that I'm coming up with who are figuring that out in the same way. And together, we, we seem to be 
avoiding a lot of the traps that people fall into when they lose their belief system of wanting to just fall into another rigid ideology or system of belief because that would be very comforting. And um, that's what I really think is noble about yourself and a lot of the other people that I uh, talk to in this sphere is that we all seem to be trying to make an effort to really define our views as individuals and not Mm -hmm. fall into, okay, well, I'm abandoning, you know, the Democrats. So now I'm, uh, you know, an NRX guy or whatever. Not that I have any problem (laughs) with the NRX people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But that would be a weird slide. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the kind of thing you, you see happening. You know, you've got like the whole... The, the Democrat to deplorable pipeline is like a, a common theme now. And it's like, yeah. well, you don't have to necessarily just go whole hog to the other side just because, you know, you lost something. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, Cody, I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you as a friend. I'm, I'm really glad that you came on and we were able to have this conversation. I'm Same. sure we'll have another conversation maybe uh, maybe in a year from now when things are totally different again. Um but uh, any any last words uh, before I let you go here where people can check out your work and visit you? Yeah, sure. Um, I have a blog. I haven't really been updating it too much, but I have a few things in the pipeline I've been working on. Um, Get that I IDW hold... graph out. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm, now you have me curious about that because I, I don't think, I don't think it, it's really unified behind one thing. Um, yeah, my blog is culturologies.wordpress.com. Um, pretty much just blog about anthropology and a few other things there um i have a couple pieces coming soon that hope to get out yeah don't let him be too modest cody's like has an encyclopedic knowledge of anthropology so when he writes it's like really solid writing in terms of, of of what he produces so i really encourage everybody to go check out his blog and hopefully we'll be seeing more of you i know you're back in grad school so you're probably going to be really busy jumping back into things but um Again, I appreciate you coming on, and I'll talk to you later. Yeah. See you soon. Yeah.